I suspect that 2019 will be a year of change for Iron City Baptist Church. As I've been thinking about and preparing kind of for our vision series and and preparing for what the Lord would have for us to do in 2019, you know, I had a thought that came to my mind. We are perfectly equipped, we are perfectly programmed, we are perfectly aligned to get the results that we're getting right now. That, That we are perfectly equipped to reach the people that we're reaching right now. We're perfectly equipped to have the level of community and fellowship and unity that we have right now. We're perfectly equipped to advance the the causes of the gospel to the nations as we are doing right now. The results that we are getting right now by the grace of God and by the goodness of God have been positive and exciting. But brothers and sisters, let's not be content with that. See, even more at the forefront of my mind than all of those things is that we are perfectly equipped, perfectly programmed to get the level of joy that we're getting right now. The joy for each one of you. The joy that you have in the gospel. The joy that you have abiding in Christ. We are equipped, we we are programmed perfectly to equip you to the level that we're doing right now. And, And even beyond that, we are equipped to advance the joy of our community in Christ as we are doing right now. And brothers and sisters, I want our church to have more joy than that. I want our community to be filled with joy in Christ as they find Christ and begin to pursue Christ, as they are awakened to the goodness and the glory of the gospel. And you know what? The only way that we can do that is to to pursue it in ways we've never pursued it before and to do it through things that we've never done before and to, to bring changes to things. But I believe that's worth it. It's uncomfortable for me. It's probably going to be uncomfortable for us all. But but our joy, our community, our Lord, they are worth it. They are worth it, brothers and sisters. This morning, we're going to be in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, if you want to go ahead and turn with us there. And what we're going to see is is Paul talking to the church of Thessalonica about their their primary purpose in life, about the, the, the overarching focus of the Christian life. And what we're going to see this morning is that the overarching focus of the Christian life is to be God's pleasure in us and our pleasure in God. God's pleasure in us and our pleasure in God. And what I want us to do as we begin to pursue joy together, as we begin to pursue our joys, we begin to pursue the joy of our community, as we begin to bring pleasure to the Lord, is to hopefully build a bridge, starting this morning, build a bridge between those two great purposes of God finding pleasure in us and us finding pleasure in God, and build a bridge between those two wonderful overarching purposes that I believe we get from the scriptures. The theme that I have chosen for us for 2019 is the theme of joy. The theme of joy. I want this to be the most joyful place that you come all week. 
Man, you go to work in hard places, and you go home sometimes to hard places, and you deal with hard realities. You go to the, the hospital, and it's hard. And you go to the, the family reunion, and it's hard. And you face difficulty and death, and it's hard. But man, let us come to church and find joy. I, I want it to be about joy as your, for your family. I want it to be about joy uh, in your personal delight in the scriptures and your walk with God. I want it to be about joy, pursuing the joy of others in our community. You understand, that is the Great Commission. So this morning, let's go ahead and get started in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 as we embark on this new journey of joy with one another. If you get to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, would you stand with me? As we read God's word together, I think I only gave the, uh, the sound crew through verse 8, so, but I'm going to go through verse 12 this morning, so you guys are welcome, and I apologize. All right, chapter 4, but we're really going to zero in on verse 1 and then see how the other verses really illuminate verse 1. It says, finally then, brothers, we ask and urge you in the Lord Jesus that as you receive from us how you ought to walk and to please God, just as you are doing, that you do so more and more. For you know what instructions we gave through the Lord Jesus. For this is the will of God, your sanctification, that you abstain from sexual immorality, that each of you know how to control his own body in holiness and honor, not in the passion of lust like the Gentiles who do not know God, that no one transgress and wrong his brother in this matter, because the Lord is an avenger in all these things, as we told you beforehand and solemnly warned you. For God has not called us for impurity, but in holiness. Therefore, whoever disregards this, disregards not man, but God, who gives his Holy Spirit to you. Now concerning brotherly love, you have no need for anyone to write to you, for you yourselves have been taught by God to love one another, for that indeed is what you are doing to all the brothers throughout Macedonia. But we urge you, brothers, to do this more and more, and to aspire to live quietly, and to mind your own affairs, and to work with your hands as we instructed you, so that you may walk properly before outsiders and be dependent on no one. May God bless the reading and the preaching of his word. You may be seated. I want us to start this morning by seeing that holiness is living for the pleasure of God. That holiness is living for the pleasure of God. When we look at Paul, what Paul says here in verse uh, chapter 4, verse 1, it's an important message for us as we begin to make resolutions, as we begin to set new goals for 2019 and to see what the Lord might have for us. He says, we ask and urge you in the Lord Jesus that as you receive from us how you ought to walk and to please God, just as you are doing, that you do so more and more. Paul starts with a word of commendation for the church at Thessalonica. These Thessalonian Christians were, were doing well, and they were an encouragement to Paul. Paul saw the way that they cared for each other, and the way they loved one another, and the way they ministered to each other in the gospel, the way they used their spiritual gifts to build up the church and to build up their brothers and sisters, how they lived the lives of, of faith and dependence upon the Lord, trusting that the Lord was their provider and trusting that the Lord was their sustainer. And so Paul has a word for them that he has for all of us. That, that some of you are in different places from coming out of 2018. For some of you in 2018 was a year of progression in your walk with the Lord. 
You grew in ways that you've never grown before. You, you saw God in ways that you had never seen Him before. The Scriptures opened up to you. Man, I'm getting texts and emails from people saying, hey, can you tell me what commentary sets I need to buy and this? And I'm like, wow, like, this is pretty cool. I mean, that, that's exciting stuff. And hearing people talking about the Lord, calling them to mission and giving them a heart for, for particular places. And, and what I see when I, when I hear all of those things, what I'm hearing is, is I've grown in my passion for God. I've grown in my passion to know His Word and to study His Word and to see His glory. I've grown in my desire to worship Him anew. I'm in a different place than I was last year, and I want to see more. I want more. And that's what Paul is saying, is that there is never a place in the Christian life, regardless of how you progressed in 2018, regardless of what new things God has revealed to you about himself in 2018, regardless of how your worship got richer and your, your insight got deeper, regardless of how any of those things happen, what Paul says is this, as we are growing, that the will of God for us is our sanctification, that we would progress and that we would grow in that more and more, right? Remember that phrase comes in there twice, doesn't it? It shows up twice. And what Paul is saying is that if you've been progressing, keep on progressing. Keep on going deeper. For some of you, it wasn't a year of progression, though. For some, it was a year of regression. You look back over 2018 and you realize, you know, I'm not as in love with the Lord now as I was at the beginning. I took some lumps or I fell away or I fell into sin. I got distracted. I got too busy. I got too this. I got too that. And looking back over the course of the year, I could name a hundred different excuses and a hundred different reasons. But the truth of the matter is, is I have taken a step back in my pursuit of the Lord. I have taken a step back in my intimacy with the Lord. That I'm not as close as I was, once was, and I'm not as close as I used to be. And the Paul has the same word for you. Wherever you are, whatever you've seen, whatever you remember, let the past be the past. And in sin, pursue the glory of God more and more. You see, whatever you've seen about God, there's more yet to see. Whatever you know about God, there's more yet to know. That as we are progressing and as we are being sanctified in this life, the glory of God is, is that it just gets better. It just gets better. Whatever joy you have, you can have more because there's more of God to have. Whatever worship that you have, you can have more because there is yet more of God to be awestruck by and dumbfounded by and to lift up your hands and voice and say, praise God. Whatever you, wherever you are and wherever you've been in your Christian walk, the goal for 2019 is that you would go deeper still, that you would see more yet that, that you would have more and more and more of God and that you would crave and hunger and thirst for more and more of God. Whether you're a teacher or you're a new Christian, that you would have more and more. And so this is the purpose of mankind. That as we see here, he's talking about that we are to live a life that is pleasing to God and what, what I want us to see is that to live a life that is to God's pleasure, to live a life in pursuit of more and more of God and to know God better and better and to live a life that is pleasing to God is actually the very purpose for which you were made. 
It is the purpose that, that God, when Solomon says that eternity has been placed into your heart, this is what he's getting at. When, when it says in, in Genesis 1, 26 through 28, that we have been made in the image of God, it means that we have been made uniquely to live in knowledge of God and to walk with God and to bring pleasure to God. To live lives that are pleasing to, you, to God means that us as the image bearers of God are now able to do that in ways that no other creature can do, that no other creature can hope for because we are his reflectors. Calvin says in his commentary on Genesis that, that we are all mirrors of the divine placed in the great theater of earth as the crescendo of creation so that he can delight in us. Brothers and sisters, that is the aim of life. That is the aim of worship. And that is the aim of the church. That as you see God more and more and you know God more and more, that you are now more and more abled to please Him, to bring pleasure to Him, to bring joy to Him. That's a wonderful thought, isn't it? That you can live your life in a way that brings pleasure to God. It's a wonderful thought. See, the issue in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 is primarily the issue of holiness. Primarily the issue of holiness. And it seems odd, maybe, as we kick off a series on joy, to start with holiness. Because most of the folks that we hear now are saying, stay away from holiness. We don't, we don't have a lot of holiness preached in the life of the church anymore, right? Because holiness rubs people the wrong way. And it says that you're a sinner and God is holy and you're not all of those things, right? But brothers and sisters, I believe that holiness is the key to pleasure. Or maybe even better said yet, that pleasure is the key to holiness. That God's pleasure and our pleasure is the key to holiness. He says that this is how you ought to walk, that I've given you some instructions, I've given you some things so that you might know how you ought to walk. In other words, Paul is saying, I have instructed you in the church of Thessalonica in how you can live lives that are holy, live lives that are set apart, live lives that are distinct from the world, live lives that are defined by righteousness. He says it even more explicitly in verse 7 when he says, For God did not call us for impurity, but in holiness. See, holiness means to stand out because of your character, to stand out because of your righteousness, to stand out because of your purity. The word holiness, liter the word holy literally means to be, to be set apart. To be set apart. But in the Christian life, in the Christian life, the goal here is not legalism, and the goal here is not moralism, and the goal here is not mere behavior modification, so that from the outside looking in, you look impressive. That is not what brings pleasure to God. That is not what pleases God. In fact, I don't believe that is holiness at all. No, holiness in the Christian life is to be... To, be, to stand out from the world in character, to stand out from the world in purity, to stand out from the world in righteousness with a particular end in mind. A passion, and, the, the passion and pleasure of our God. It is to live so enamored with the Lord, so enamored with His glory, so impassioned for His causes that it causes you to live in a different way. To be so infatuated with God that it begins to affect everything else that you do, everywhere that you are. And if you live for the pleasures of God, brothers and sisters, you will stand out. 
It's fascinating that he tells us to please God in verse 1 because it's good news. It means that there's a life that you can live that does please God. That you, you, living in Rabbit Town, living in Chocolaga, living in Heflin, living in Golden Springs, you, a person in obscure Alabama that nobody else in the world knows or anything about, that you, you can live a life as a husband and as a dad and as a mom and as a, as a daughter, as a son, you can live a life that brings pleasure to God, that is pleasing to God, that God delights in and finds joy from. And this is why he tells them how they ought to walk. He tells them how they ought to walk in holiness so that their lives might be set apart in holiness for the purpose of bringing pleasure to God. As we look through verse 12, we see some examples of what he means by how you ought to walk and, and what, it's looking, what, what that would look like, what a holy life uh, is, is characterized by. The first thing that we see is that he says, in a culture of promiscuity, you will be pure. In a culture of promiscuity, you will be pure. Uh, starting in about verse 3 and going through verse 5, the, the main thrust that Paul has is to, to take aim at sexual immorality in, in uh, Thessalonica. To take, to take aim at something that was incredibly ordinary for the church there. Incredibly ordinary. They were so desensitized because of their culture to sexual immorality and sexual promiscuity that they were numb to it and they were disabled from being able to feel the weight of it and the, and the way that God feels about it. And so they live lives even within the church that brought God shame and not pleasure, uh, uh, brought, God, brought God anger and not delight. So Paul is saying, do you want to live holy? Do you want to live a life in which God takes pleasure? Do you want to live a life in which he says, well done, my good and faithful servant. Do you want to live a life that grows in intimacy with God? Do you want to live a life in which you're being sanctified and growing in the likeness of Christ in your life? Do you want to live a life like that? That in a culture of promiscuity, you be pure. In a culture of promiscuity, you say, I don't need the pleasures of a, of a lover. I don't need the pleasures of a mistress. I don't need the pleasures of a concubine. I just need God. I just need God. You see, in Thessalonica, it was not very different from our America. In Thessalonica, you would have uh, people and they would, they would go and they would cheat on their wives with their, with their neighbor's wife. They would have concubines that they believed satisfied the daily needs of the man of the house. Divorces were ordinary and regular. And by the, some, some of the historians say you measure the years that you have by the wives that you take. They would have Greek temples, and at the edges of these Greek temples, they would have prostitutes that were used to arouse the pleasures of their false and wicked gods. And so what does Paul say? In that culture, in that culture that celebrates promiscuity, does that sound familiar? In that culture that celebrates being able to philander and go where you want to go. In a culture that even says that it is a form of worship. Set yourself apart in purity. Set yourself apart by a character that is forged through devotion to your wife. Through a character that is 
forged by devotion to your family, a character that is forged by aiming not at your own pleasures, but at the pleasures of God. In other words, this is how you ought to walk and please God. Not only does he say that, he says in a culture that materializes people, you will love them. In a culture that materializes people, you will love them. In verse, verse 5, it says, Not in the passion of lust like the Gentiles who do no wrong, that no one transgress and wrong his brother in this matter. What was the issue? The issue was that in Thessalonica, men would steal each other's wives. They, it, was, it was ordinary for them. It was, it was expected for them. And they would go and they would, they would take a wife that was not theirs and they would be sinning against two, their brother and their wife. Not only that, but as I mentioned before, you had, you had prostitutes and, and concubines and their entire life was, was, was aimed at being used. Being used for someone else's pleasure. Being used for someone else's passions. So Paul is saying, no, not you though. Not the church, not those who are in the image of Christ, not those who love God. You will not materialize people. You will not materialize fellow image bearers of Almighty God. You will not materialize them. You will love them. You will love them as you love yourself. You will put yourself out at their expense. You will do without so that they can have. You will pursue their well-being with the same ferocity that you pursue your own well-being. And you will stand out. And you will be set apart. And your life will be defined by holiness. And you will bring pleasure to God. You will bring pleasure to God. Finally, he says, in a culture that screams, look at me, you will humbly live so that others look past you to Jesus. This is what he says. He says, aspire to live quietly, to mind your own affairs and to work with your hands as we instructed you, so that you may walk properly before outsiders and be dependent on no one. He lived in a, in a culture, the, the church at Thessalonica lived in a culture that was continually about self-promotion, about getting out and having the greatest insight and the greatest philosophies and having the highest name and raising the stake of your family. Sounds familiar to us, doesn't it, brothers and sisters? And he says, instead of being like that, instead of walking as a billboard that celebrates yourself, you are going to walk humbly. You are going to live quietly. You are going to make it your ambition to live a quiet, dignified life so that when outsiders look at you, they see past the facade and they see past the self-promotion uh, self and they see all the way to Jesus. And you will stand out. Your life will be holy. Your character will be unique. Your life will be righteous in a way that brings glory and honor and pleasure and joy to the mind of God. You see, brothers and sisters, holiness is not about you looking good. It's not about your goodness. It's not about simply your morality or lack thereof. Holiness isn't about your goodness. Holiness is about God's goodness. And when you live a holy life, 
When you live your life to the pleasures of God, what you are telling the world is that God is better than everything else I can find. God is better than anything else that I can buy. God is better than anyone else that I can have. God is better than anything else I can pursue. Any ambition, any passion, any pleasure, it is all subjected to God because God is good. I wonder, brothers and sisters, if one of the reasons the church is so anxious to turn a de- uh, the world is so anxious to turn a deaf ear to the church is because we live lives that are no more holy than the world. We live lives that are no, not set apart in purity, not set apart in righteousness, not set apart in character. And so when the world looks at the church and when the world looks at Christians, the world says their God is no better than mine. If we buy the same way and spend the same way and live the same way and are promiscuous the same way, why would the world want our message? Why would the world want our Savior? Why would the world want our God? But brothers and sisters, if we will live for the pleasures of God, if we will live for the passions of God, if we will live for the joy of God, and we will set ourselves apart, the world will look past all of that and see that our God is greater than the emptiness they know when they go to bed at night. See, holiness is living for the pleasure of God. But holiness is not just about God's pleasure. Holiness is about yours. Holiness is not just about God's pleasure with you. It's also, and at the forefront, your pleasure in God. You see, you can both please and displease God. We said earlier that, that by him instructing us to live in a way that is pleasing to God, that that implies that there is a life that we can live that does please God, that we can live. We are capable by the Spirit's power and by God's grace of living lives that God takes pleasure in. But you know what he also says? Don't live like the Gentiles live. Don't walk like the Gentiles walk. That there is also a way that you can live that brings shame to God that brings frustration to God, that quenches the spirit in your life, that, does it, that completely displeases him with your life. That there is a way that you ought to walk and there is a way that you ought not to walk. I think there's a question that begins to, to bubble up as we talk about the ways that we should live and the ways that we shouldn't live and the, ways that we, the things that we should do and the things that we, we shouldn't do, I think there's a, there's a question that begins to, to bubble up for us, especially in this conversation about joy. And we're getting there, by the way. And it's, what makes us different from the Pharisees? What makes us different from the Pharisees? That the Pharisees were always aiming at living a moral life. The Pharisees were always aimed at living uh, in a way that, that was, was set apart from the world. The Pharisees prayed distinctly and the Pharisees dressed distinctly and the, and the Pharisees lived distinctly. So, so what is it about us when we talk about living a holy life? What is it that differs us from the Pharisees? Perhaps to place it in a more modern context, we might say, what is it that separates us from the Muslim? What is it that separates us 
from the Mormon because both the Muslim faith and the Mormon faith, both of them tell us that you are to live a certain life, a life that is set apart, a life that is righteous, a life that is characterized by, by living with a, a strict code of morality and by living the strict code of morality that God will accept you into his kingdom. So what is it that separates us from them? Because you know what the Pharisees called their lives? Holiness. And you know what Muslims call their lives and their code of ethics? They call it holiness. And you know what the Mormons call their lives? Holiness. Think about the mission trip I went on uh, with one of our teams to Salt Lake. And we were there and we were uh, it was uh, another person and I, and we, were, we had met with one of the missionaries. You know, they have the, the Mormon missionaries all over Salt Lake, and we're at the Mormon temple, and we're kind of doing some, some sightseeing with kind of a, a secondary thought toward being able to share the gospel. And one of the, one of the Mormon missionaries, she's go, and she's got us alone in this elevator, and she's taking us to the top of this place so we can kind of see, this, uh, see this, this view and be able to, she can point out some landmarks and explain some things to us. And she's probably in her early 60s, early to mid-60s. And so I just asked her, I said, so how do you know that you can go to heaven? How do you know that you go to heaven? And she told me, she said, well, we have to give to the church. What do you ask her, what do you have to do to get to heaven? And she said, we have to give to the church. We have to go to the church, be faithful to, the, to attend the temple. And we have to try to live a good moral life. So I asked her, I said, well, if it would be okay, I'd like to ask you, like, how do you know if you've lived a moral life? And who defines what is morality? Is morality just what you do and what you, the actions in your life? Or is, is morality your, your attitude and your motives and your thoughts? Is morality just, just where you go and what other people see? Or is it the heart that's in you that God sees and God knows and God is aware of? And so I asked her, I said, how can you know if you have lived a moral life? And she says, we really don't know. We just get to the end and hope that we've lived a moral enough life. Brothers and sisters, I think when I was growing up, many of you are probably the same. That my experience with church over a portion of my Christian life was that I learned more about what I was supposed to not do than about who I was supposed to love. I learned more about standards of ethics and, and do's and don'ts and, and rules and, 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 and things that you can kind of fudge on and those that you can't fudge on. The, I, I learned more about what I was against and what I wasn't supposed to do than who I was supposed to love. And I think what's happened is that we have created one of two people with these types of churches. We have either created cultural Christians that live proud of themselves that nobody else can stand to be around or we have created people that abandon the church and rebel against the church because getting to the standard of holiness and getting to the standard of morality that they believed that they were supposed to get to was like trying to dunk on a hundred foot basketball goal and some of them could jump a little bit higher than others and some of them could behave a little bit better than others but no matter how high you could jump and no matter how well you could behave you just always fell short so they left the church but either way whether you're the the, the self-pleased pharisee or you're the the person that rebelled and abandoned the church both of you ended up tired and both of you ended up unsure of why you were doing what you were doing and what the rules were really all about and why it was so significant and you looked and you looked and you looked and you never saw it so what makes the difference? 
What, what differentiates what we're talking about this morning from the Pharisee, from the Mormon, from the Muslim? The difference between holiness and hypocrisy. The difference between pleasing God and pleasing people. The difference between grace-soaked obedience versus guilt-ridden conformity is that the true holiness is when you please God by taking pleasure in God rather than performing for God so that you might be accepted by God. Can I read that one more time? True holiness is when you please God by taking pleasure in God rather than performing for God so that you might be accepted by God. True holiness comes when you taste everything that's in the world and you've seen the true glory of God and you've seen the true wonder of God and you've embraced the true gospel of Jesus Christ. And so you go back into the world And you want to taste the materialism and you you taste the promiscuity and you taste all the things, the the ambitions and the the career advancement and cutting corners and, and numbing your pain with addictions and this and that. And you go back into the world having seen the glories of God and yet all the things in the world just taste flat to you. They taste flat because you have found a supreme pleasure You have found a superior passion. You have found a superior wonder. You think about the examples that Paul gives. All of them have to do with passions, don't they? All of them have to do with pleasures. All of them have to do with the things that we aim at in life. And some of us hit them and some of us don't, but we all aim at these things in life and we aim at them for the purpose of achieving our pleasure. I think this is at the forefront of Paul's mind. First of all, he talks about your passions and your appetites to control his own body in holiness and honor, not in the passion of lust like the Gentiles who do not know God. He's saying that your passion, the way that you live out the appetites in your life, say something about what your view of God is. Your love, verses 9 and 10, for you yourselves have been taught by God to love one another. Don't we pursue love for the purpose of our pleasure? Your ambition and aspiration. He says to aspire to live quietly and to mind your own affairs and to work with your hands. Isn't our ambition, doesn't our ambition have as its aim our pleasure? Instead, what Paul is saying is to live your life for God's pleasure. And to find so much pleasure in God and so much wonder in God and so much delight in God that the trivial, fleeting, rotting, moth-eaten pleasures of this world are seen for what they really are. Temporal, worthless, and fleeting. See, holiness is not about a massive, miserable sacrifice. I was taught early in my faith that God came, that Jesus came to make us holy and not happy. But brothers and sisters, I believe that is a false dichotomy. That is a false dichotomy. Did Jesus not start his sermon on the mount by saying, blessed is the poor, are the poor in spirit. Blessed are the pure in heart. Blessed are those who are persecuted. And do you know what the word blessed in the Beatitudes means? It means happy. Happy. You can tell and argue that you are not pursuing happiness with your life, but the truth of the matter is is that everything that we do in our lives is at the end aimed at our happiness. So holiness is not about being miserable. 
It's not about pursuing misery. It's about pursuing a greater happiness. It's about pursuing a greater pleasure. Christian, don't feel guilty for being happy. Don't feel guilty for pursuing pleasure. That, that is the lie of legalism. No. Pursue happiness with everything that you've got. Not being numbed by drugs and numbed by television and numbed by materialism and numbed by relationships. Not being numbed, but pursuing real joy and real happiness by pursuing God. See, holiness is not pursuing misery. It's pursuing real pleasure that will last forever by pursuing that pleasure in the person of God. Holiness is getting so happy in God that you don't need the cheap happiness found in the world. So that now, like Paul says in Philippians chapter 4, you can be happy whether, you can be content whether you have a lot or you have a little. You can be content whether you are sick or you are well. You can be content whether you are cast out or brought in. You can be content because you have Christ. And Christ is the source of your happiness. And Christ is the aim of your pleasure. And Christ is the aim of your life. See, real holiness comes. When you find all of your pleasure in God's pleasure, your holiness will be directly proportional to the contentment of your pleasure. That is, your ability or inability to live for God's pleasure will be directly related to whether or not you find your happiness and your pleasure in God satisfying. So let me ask you, is God enough for you? Or do you need sex? And do you need mistresses? Is God enough for you or do you need somebody else to tell you that you're pretty and to make you feel desirable? Is God enough for you or do you need greater career advancement? Do you need that scholarship that's on the table? Do you need to go to the right school and be in the right fraternity or sorority? Is God enough for you or do you need to have the right address and drive the right car and wear the right clothes? Is God enough for you or do you need to hear all of the praise and all of the applause of the world? Is God enough for you? Are you willing to find your pleasure in God and finding your pleasure in God? God will look down and take pleasure in you. Take pleasure in you. You try to follow all of these rules so that others will be impressed with you, so that others will take notice, so that the pastor will sign off on your life. You are simply proving to God how much you love yourself for you are following the rules at the advancement of your own name. And if you run into the world looking to sex and love and ambition to bring your soul the pleasure that it craves and the happiness that it desires and the things that it wants you're going to find that it's never enough. And every day, you're going to have to work that much harder to find new pleasure. And every day, you're going to have to try to top what you did yesterday. And what you're going to find out is that you are running on a treadmill, going nowhere, trying to make a square meal out of poison. You know, if you eat enough poison, you'll get full. But it'll kill you. And so many of us, brothers and sisters, are are 
pursuing the pleasures of the world and we're training our children that they have to have all the things in the world and all of the time we are giving them spoonful after spoonful after spoonful of poison. Brothers and sisters, have we spent more time in the last month convincing them that Santa is real than we have convincing them that God is real? What we must train them to do is to live for the pleasure of God. Forget about everything else. It will come. Delight yourself in the Lord and he will give you the desires of your heart. But brothers and sisters, let us delight ourselves in God. Don't be poisoned by the dangling advertisements of this world. Rather, come to a fountain of living water. Come to a fountain of living water. You want joy? Come to a never-ending, satisfying fountain. You want happiness? Come to the fountain. You want contentment? Come to the fountain. You've tried the world and it's left you empty. You've tried the world and it's left you hungry. You've tried the world and you're still thirsty. Come to the fountain. Brothers and sisters, Iron City Baptist Church, let us be defined Not by guilt-ridden conformity to a group of ethical rules, but rather, let us be defined by the pleasure that we take in God. Let us be defined by our joy in Christ. Let us be defined by by the happiness that we find in the person of God. Let's pray together.